Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 37 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all, and we invite you to join us in the Sanctuary of Westminster Church for our upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker. Richard Stengel is a journalist, author, and former managing editor of Time. He's a contributing writer for numerous publications, including The New Yorker, The New Republic, The New York Times, and he appears regularly on television as a political commentator. He served as Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs in the Obama administration, and he was President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. He collaborated with Nelson Mandela on his acclaimed autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom, and he was co-producer of the Oscar-nominated documentary film, Mandela. He's the author of the book, Mandela's Way, Lessons for an Uncertain Age an inspiring reflection on the principles that shaped the life of South Africa's former president. As our speaker notes in the book's introduction, for a darkening world, Mandela's enlightened and generous leadership is a beacon. The world would be a better, safer, saner place if leaders could only follow Mandela's way. In this 100th anniversary year of Nelson Mandela's birth, Please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum Mr. Mandela's esteemed co-writer and friend, Richard Stengel. Good evening, everyone. Tim, thank you for that kind introduction. Hearing the South African musicians here brought me back to when I first met him, which was 91, before South Africa was free. And he would come before a crowd, there would be musicians like that, and then he'd come up to the podium and he'd go, Amandla. People know what that means? Power. And everybody in the congregation would go, Away to, the power is ours. And it was fantastic. It used to lift the whole place off the ground. Um, he did that call and response when he spoke, and that was often the best part of his speeches. So um, <laughs> he wasn't a great speaker. He was a great man, though. And so, as Tim mentioned, I worked with him on Long Walk to Freedom. I had this incredible privilege of spending about a year and a half with him, seeing him almost every day, and we did about 75 hours of tapes, and that helped create the book. And I was with him on many, many occasions. When I first got down there, I was a much younger man. I just said, can I just hang around with you? And, and I did. I became sort of his mascot. And one of the stories that I loved was, was something that happened towards the end of our time working together. So he had signed up to do his autobiography. And at the same time, he was saving his country from civil war running for president and writing a constitution. So he didn't really have a lot of time to do this. And towards the end, I had left for a little while and I went back just before the election because I wanted to have some of that material in the book. And I don't know if people remember that South African election. And, and the country was on the brink of a civil war. And it wasn't just white versus black. It was an internecine war among some of the black groups, including the Inkata Freedom Party, which was in KwaZulu-Natal. That was run by a man named uh, Chief Budalese. Incredible amounts of violence in that region before the election. And Mandela, who wanted everybody to understand freedom and justice, decided he was going to go down there and speak. Everybody in his entourage told him this was a terrible idea. It was too dangerous. He was a pretty stubborn guy, and he said, I'm going. So I was somewhere nearby, and I said, I'll meet you down there when you fly down there, and we'll go to the speech together, and I'll have some material for the book, and we'll spend some more time together. So I don't know if anybody's ever been to that part of the world. It's an incredibly beautiful part of the world, tiny little airport in Natal. And he's flying down from Johannesburg, 
in a two-seater propeller plane. Nelson Mandela and his bodyguard, a guy named Mike, who I got to know well, who I think it was his first time ever flying on an airplane. <laughs> so I'm waiting in the little tiny, tiny reception area at the airport. And I think it's, it's about a two and a half hour flight. And about midway through the flight, a, a young man comes in and he says to me, Mr. Stengel, um, I don't want you to be concerned, but uh, the uh, airplane, the one propeller has stopped working. And this is usually not that big a problem, but, but just to be cautious, we're putting foam on the runway. Uh, we have you know, uh, fire trucks coming. We'll, we'll keep you posted. So the plane landed without incident. Uh, Mandela typically uh, who greets anybody at that time who ever wanted to see him. There was a, a tour bus of Japanese tourists who were out there on the runway, and he got off the plane and he started shaking hands uh, with, the, with the Japanese tourists. Mike came in. Uh, he, was, he wasn't white, but he looked white. Um, <laughs> he explained what happened. He said, he said about halfway through the flight, he felt a little tap on his knee, and Mandela tapped his knee, and he pointed out the window. And I, Mike says, I looked out the window, and the propeller wasn't working. And, and Mike said, he said, you might want to tell the pilot that the propeller is not working. <laughs> so it's a tiny plane, and you know, you know, Mike went to open the door, and the two pilots said, look, we're aware of it. Uh, we've called ahead. They're putting foam on the runway, uh, fire trucks. You know, shouldn't be a problem. So Mike came back in, and he told Mandela all of this. And Mandela, I mean, that fantastic, beautiful face, he just nodded calmly. And then he went back to reading his newspaper. He loved reading newspapers. He, he was denied newspapers for those 27 years that he was in prison. He just, he, the newspaper business would be much healthier if Nelson Mandela was still alive. Um, but, and so he just went back to reading the newspaper like he was, you know, a commuter on the, you know, 801 into town. Mike said he was catatonic with fear. I mean, he'd never been on a plane before. He said the only thing that calmed him, that kept him calm, was just looking at Mandela's face, at Madiba's face is what we all called him, because he just, like he was commuting into work. So the plane landed. You know, Mike was, you know, was down on his knees so happy, and then, and then, a couple of minutes later, you know, Madiba walks back from shaking hands with all the Japanese tourists, and we had this, you know, armor-plated BMW, and I got in the car on one side, he got on the car on the other side, he closed the doors, he leaned over to me and he said, man, I was terrified up there. <laughs> so, Cut back to when we first started talking for, for uh, Long Walk to Freedom. And he had a fantastic memory. I mean, it was like he was watching the movie of his life and just narrating it. And, and at different points early on, he talked about how frightened he was. You know, I was frightened that the jailer was going to hit me. And I was frightened when I had to go to Robben Island. I was frightened, and I just kept thinking, you're Nelson Mandela, how can you be frightened? And one day I actually said that to him. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, it would be irrational not to be afraid. <laughs> and that became one of the lessons that I talk about in Mandela's way, which is this idea that courage is not the absence of fear. There is no courage without fear. But what Mandela realized is he could both show his fear and triumph over it um, by repressing it. In, in effect, that's what he did almost his whole life. It was an incredible lesson for, for people in this. And, and his bravery was not the bravery of someone who never feels fear. His bravery was always the person who, who as a young man, was, was 
frightened of so many things. And there's an incredible story um, in uh, Long Walk to Freedom that he told me, in fact, he was a member of the Khoza tribe in the Transkai. And he was raised in this kind of what we call the royal kraal. He was, in the, in the Khoza custom, young men are circumcised at 13. And this is a, a ritual that they do in front of the entire community. I mean, talk about being brave. And, um, and he was always haunted by the fact that, I forget the, the Koza word you're supposed to say, when, you're, when, you're, when the, the fellow did the deed, you were supposed to yell out, I am a man. And he faltered. And he's ne he never forgave himself for that. But he said, I experienced terrible fear, and I didn't rise up to the occasion. Um, so here's Nelson Mandela, one of the greatest men who's ever lived, one of the bravest men who's ever lived, talking about the fear that he had. And to me, that is part of what his greatness is about. And one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about this evening was leadership. He was a great student of leadership. He was a great leader, even though, you know, the old saying, are, are, you know, uh, are, uh, are leaders born or as they made. Um, he would say that, that they're made, but that there's this, you have to have this foundation. And the thing that made Nelson Mandela an extraordinary leader was not his fight necessarily against apartheid, uh, was not his, just his fight for fairness, but what really made his, his leadership, what honed him, was those years he spent in prison. Prison was the crucible um, for Nelson Mandela's leadership. And I'll tell you why. He described himself, so you know that Nelson Mandela, that white-haired fellow that we all saw um, after his retirement. And one of the things that I, I don't think he liked very much, and I know I didn't like it very much, was this kind of Santa Clausification of, of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was a revolutionary. When he went to prison, uh, he described himself as a hothead. Um, I talk about in, in, um, in Mandela's way, this idea that he was raised in that tribal area that I told you about. He was a child of privilege. He went to private schools. But when he ran away as a young man from the Transkite at Johannesburg and experienced the racism of apartheid, in fact, it was pre-apartheid. Apartheid really only started in 1948. Here was this incredible, I, mean, I don't know if you've seen pictures of him or met him. He was an incredible specimen of a human being. He's about six foot two, six three. Beautiful head, beautiful skin, big shoulders educated, smart, a gleaming smile, and he went to Johannesburg and he experienced the worst possible racism that you could imagine. This child of privilege was working as a night watchman in a mine. People spat on him. They called him Kaffir. They did all of these terrible things that was just the, the, the normal run of, of you know, South African life in those days. And, and, and to me, that was the chip, the that, that, that turned him into a crusader for justice because he thought in that very personal way that we all do, wow, if they can treat me, Nelson Mandela, like this, what about all of my people? Very few of whom had either the genetic endowment that he had or even the privilege that he had. And that made him a crusader for, for justice and for freedom for his people. But that young man was a, was a hot-headed young man. And he, one of the things we talk about, talked about in, uh, while we were working on Long Walk and that I wrote about in uh, Mandela's Way is the difference between tactics and strategy. So, and this is a, you know, military folks use this. Strategy is the, your kind of overarching principle. Tactics is how you get there. And I was talking to him one day about how he had he had started, he had become the leader of something called Umkanto Wisizwe, Spear of the Nation. It was the violent wing of the African National Congress. The African National Congress was founded as a non-violent institution. It was influenced by Gandhi's decades in, in South Africa. But they weren't getting very far, and he was the head of the ANC Youth League, and they decided, they looked around what was going on in the world. I mean, you know, there were violent revolutions in Africa. There were violent revolutions in South America. 
There were violent revolutions in Asia, and they decided that they really needed to embrace some kind of violence to have more of an effect. And I, and I said to him, Madiba, how is that that you, know, you kind of renounced nonviolence? And he said, for me, nonviolence was a tactic, not a principle. His principle was freedom, democracy, and justice. But he was a pragmatist, and he decided that the only way he could get there, that was the overarching goal, was through this embrace of violence. Now, did he ever actually commit any acts of violence? No, he didn't. He talked about how he, um, he, he was a student at heart, and he got, uh, you know, Chantou and Castiglione and all of these great military scholars and started reading them. And he was then hiding in a farmhouse outside of Johannesburg, and he managed to get an air gun. He'd never fired a gun before. And he talked about killing a sparrow and how crestfallen he was and how much that hurt him. Um, because it was against his nature, but it was, a, it was something that he needed to do for this overarching principle. And what he would always say is, you have to have some principle to guide you. How you get there makes less of a difference. But I was going to tell you what really made him a leader, and that was this prison experience. So he talked about that he was a kind of a hot-headed young man when he went into prison. And he was in his 40s. Um, but what prison did for him was it taught him immense, immense self-control. And you know, one of the things that I, I find so disturbing about the period that we're living in now is you have leaders without self-control. Um, you know, what, the, the basic tenet of leadership from his perspective, and this was the word he used, this was the highest praise that he could give to someone he would say, he's measured. Be measured was, in many ways, his core leadership principle of how to act as a leader, not to fly off at the handle, not to overreact. And prison taught him to be measured. I mean, I don't know if anybody here has been to Robben Island, where he spent the first 20 years of, of, of his prison experience. It's a beautiful island just a couple of miles off the coast of Cape Town, one of the most glorious cities in the world. And when we were working on the book, he said, you know, you should go to Robben Island and see it, which I highly recommend. And again, I, I described what he's like physically. And even when I met him, I mean, he was, he was a man of 70. So it wasn't even like what he had been before, but still, he was this extraordinary large presence. And I remember going to Robben Island and going into his cell and actually gasping when I saw it, because this enormous, beautiful man, he wouldn't even fit. He could not even lie down. He's six foot two, I lay down in it, and I'm six feet tall, and I couldn't even get my, my feet in without cramping up. And, and so what happened for him in prison is you don't have a lot to control. The only thing you can control is yourself. You can, you can control your reactions. You control your, your reactions to, the, to your warders. You can control the, 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 your reaction to the awful, nasty things that so many of the guards used to do to him. They would, they would um, take cuttings in newspapers about something about his wife, Winnie, that would upset him. Uh, he, you know, anybody that was, was betraying the ANC, he, they would give him clippings, and he would, he would control himself, and he, would, he wouldn't overreact. He would be measured. And that's one of the... the, the characters of a leader that he most admired. The, the flip side of that was something that he got as a young man that um, we were actually talking about a little bit earlier. He grew up in this, the trans guy, which was never invaded by the British. It was kept as a kind of African preserve. And his father was a so-called headman, who when his father died when he was 13, he then was raised by the, by the king of the Tembu, King Jongitaba. And Mandela worshipped and admired him. And he used to sit in the royal court. And he, and he told me about what that was like, not only hearing the stories of great African leadership, but the king in, in the council would always be the last to speak. 
everybody else would speak before him. And then his job as the king was to summarize what was said, not necessarily even to decide. And one of the things that, that was true of, of traditional African leadership and became absolutely true of the ANC that N Mandela was part of was this idea of consensus leadership. Something, another thing that, that we miss in our time now, where we a time of strong men and authoritarians who just say, you know, my way. What he learned from the king was to listen, to listen to everybody's interests, to summarize it, and to try to find some path forward that takes into account all of these ideas. That is leadership. That's what he would say is leadership is. Yes, sometimes you have to do something on your own, and he did. But he always tried to form a consensus. And that was something that we don't necessarily um, attribute to him, but that is the way he was. Another aspect of his leadership that people always ask me about um, is how could he come out of prison and be so unbitter? Because remember, when he came out of prison, he would say all of the time, you have to forget the past. Uh, we have to move forward. We have to forgive our oppressors. Uh, if you don't forgive your oppressor, you're oppressing yourself. That was, that was his idea. But working with him at that time and knowing him and hearing things that he didn't always say in public, although, by the way, the difference between what he said in public and private was infinitesimal. There wasn't a vast difference. But I knew that that man who had lost the best years of his life, that had not seen his family. His oldest son died in a car crash when he was in prison. His two daughters with Winnie, he never, he didn't, he didn't meet them until they were 18, 19. Had tremendous sacrifice. He is only human. I, that first story, he was afraid in that airplane. He was as bitter as any of us would be and as angry about it as any of us would be. But he understood to heal his country to prevent a civil war, he could never, ever let anyone see him be bitter for even one second. And that was partially that self-control that he learned, but partially that is leadership. That is courage. And so he went to see his uh, former guards in prison and had lunch and dinner with them. He went to see the widows of old apartheid leaders. He did all of these things, and people would go, God, that's Nelson Mandela. <laughs> can forgive his jailers, I, I can forgive my neighbor, or I can be a little bit bigger about this thing that's bothering me. That's what he understood about leadership, that a leader, as he used to say sometimes, has to play the part, and he understood that part. So I do think, and I, and I think we'll talk about it during questions, and I hope people will ask me about it, because I do think he is a model for leadership of our time, and what saddens me is that so many of the leaders that we see not only in the United States but around the world are un-Mandela-like. Their, their instincts are authoritarian. Uh, they are not listening to people. They're making the decisions their own way. And I do think given the time that we live in, you know, he used to say, he loved speaking to um, young people and you know, as he would say, young people are not the future, they're the present. And a continent like Africa, 70% of people are under the age of, of 25. And I, I used to love, we used to walk around, I would stay with him in his house in the Transkai, and we would take walks in the morning, and I would love it when he would meet a little boy or a little girl, and he always asked them, <laughs> he always asked them, the, the first question he ever asked them was, he'd bend down and he'd go, and what did you have for breakfast today? And it, it wasn't meant to be funny. He, wanted it, he really wanted to know. And he, he, was, he was concerned about people's nutrition. And, um, but, but if you want to see silence, you know, a, a five-year-old African boy with Nelson Mandela asking him what he had breakfast that day, you'd ne we'd never found out. But, um, but, he, but, this, but what he would say about leadership to young people was, Every leader has one thing in common, and, and it's a very simple thing, and that is the willingness to lead, the willingness to step forward and say, it's on me, I'm going to do this, 
That is the very beginning of all leadership. And I do think right now in the time we live in, that is imperative for all of us to step forward as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard Stengel. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister of Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker is Richard Stengel, former managing editor of Time and author of the book Mandela's Way, Lessons for an Uncertain Age. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, the co-sponsor of this forum, Hennepin County Library, and our online media sponsor, MinPost, and the Minnesota Orchestra, whose summer series of concerts and events will celebrate Nelson Mandela's centenary. Now, Richard Stengel, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. First question has to do with uh, the place of Mandela in uh, the, the broader context of Africa. How unique was he in the, as an African leader, uh, particularly in, in light of some of the African leaders we've seen in the post-colonial era? That's an excellent question. And one of the most amazing things that Nelson Mandela did, it was a, I was about to say it was symbolic, but it was far more than symbolic, was something that mirrored the person that I always compared him to in my own mind, and that's George Washington. George Washington once said, as the first president of the United States of a new country, which Nelson Mandela was, he said, every step I take in the sand is the first step on that beach, and someone will walk behind me. And remember, George Washington, in the Constitution, there's no, there were no term limits when the Constitution was ratified in 1789. He, on his own, served two terms and then retired. There were some people who wanted him to be president for life. Nelson Mandela created his country, was the father of his country, and did one term in office and then retired. He said, I think he used to say, I don't think a president should be an octogenarian. And people should learn that too. Um, and that set a template for a continent where so many leaders over decades, the only way they left office was horizontally. They stayed in office forever and ever. And there were men, um, uh, who were, had been freedom fighters like him. I think of Mr. Mugabe in Zimbabwe, who was that same generation of leader who basically took what was a wonderful legacy of, of fighting against colonialism and the freedom for his people and then became a dictator for life. So, so I think the Nelson Mandela model of leadership in, for the African continent is very important, that, that you have to have term limits, you have to listen to the public, uh, you can't be a leader for life like Xi Jinping. Uh -huh. How did Mandela plan for his uh, successor, or did he plan, have a plan for succession? So um, I might even make some news here tonight. So I don't know if folks, if folks follow um, South African politics, but the new president of South Africa, who had been the head of the ANC, is a gentleman by the name of Cyril Ramaphosa. I knew Cyril well in those days when I worked with uh, Mandela. He was then the leader uh, of the, the Mine Workers Union. He stayed in South Africa. He didn't leave. I, I, I used to, when I first met Cyril, I thought he should be president of the United States, not just president of South Africa. And, uh, and Mandela thought he should be president of South Africa. But, and he was in Mandela's cabinet, but what happened was, one of the things that he said, used to say over and over when he first came out of prison was, I'm a loyal member of the ANC. And the ANC, as I, as I mentioned, was a consensus organization. And, the, and um, the 
consensus of the executive committee of the ANC was a, was a uh, fellow named Tabo Mbeki, uh, who was the son of a fellow prisoner on Robben Island with Nelson Mandela, Govan Mbeki, that, that, that Tabo should be Nelson Mandela's successor, even though Mandela preferred Cyril, and I think somewhere he's smiling now that, you know, Cyril <laughs> will, will help repair that nation, which had suffered grievously under, uh, under the last leadership of Jacob Zuma and had become a font of, of corruption and a betrayal of the interests of the people and, I believe, the betrayal of, uh, of Nelson Mandela's vision. So how do you think Mandela would view today's South Africa, South Africa of 2018? Well, I, I think he would be disgusted with the amount of corruption that there has been. I think he would be unhappy with the slow pace of reform, of, you know, of, of, of bringing more and more South Africans clean water, electricity, all of these things. Um, but I think he would be happy that, that Cyril is now trying to repair the breach. Did you ever see Mandela compromise on his principles? You know, we talked a little bit about this before, about tactics versus strategy and having an overarching principle. I, I think he compromised a lot, um, but in a good way. Um, he would say that one of the features of strong leadership is the ability to compromise. I mean, uncompromising leaders are not the leaders that you want. I mean, he, where do I begin of how he compromised? I mean, the, the ANC was a, was a socialist organization. Uh, the ANC Freedom Charter, you know, which he signed on to, said that, that the wealth below the ground, that's oil and minerals, belongs to the people, that they wanted to nationalize all of the old English companies there. He changed his mind about that. Within a, within a few months of getting out and realizing the world had changed, you just couldn't couldn't um, you, you couldn't really succeed that way. Um, he compromised on some very things that were very core to who he was, because he realized they would not get him to that goal, the overarching goal of justice and freedom for his people. Uh, there are some who compare Obama to Mandela, particularly with the kind of leadership, the leadership from behind, in a sense. Uh, <clears throat> he, Obama had, was criticized for that kind of leadership. Was Mandela similarly criticized? So um, I worked for Barack Obama. I couldn't admire anybody more than I admire Barack Obama. I think in so many ways, he embodied those leadership principles of Nelson Mandela. He embodied them in a way that I, I don't, I, it wasn't copying him, it was just the way he was as a person. I mean, he actually <laughs> didn't have to go to prison for 27 years to have that incredible measuredness and self-control. Um, I, 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 you know, I can't even count the number of times that I was in the Situation Room at the White House or with President Obama where he was just so measured and controlled in a situation where any other human being would, would you know, fly off the handle. Um, I think also this idea of kind of consensus leadership, not that Barack Obama was not a strong leader, but if you look at that leading from behind phrase, which I think has been misused, um, that's a form of consensus leadership. I think that phrase was first used around the, uh, the intervention in Libya, where President Obama said, well, gee, the, the British and the French are hankering to do this, and they want to send their planes there, and we don't, have to, we don't have to be marching at the front of every parade, but we can participate in that. And I think it, that, that also is a, is a Mandela model for leadership. We have a number of questions, including from some who are live streaming, uh, about uh, this measured response to, particularly to, to crisis or critical situations. How do we uh, foster that kind of measured response in our own leaders? <laughs> you want me to go on to the next question? <laughs> I'm being very measured in my response to that question. Um, you know, that, that is the question, isn't it? I mean, 
I would have thought that people would look at someone like Barack Obama and say, yes, that's how I want my president to be. I want him to, to be calm. I want him to be thoughtful. Um, I don't want him to overreact um, rather than be like a circus showman. Um, but that is a side of America that we've always had. Um, and, and politicians have to be you know, entertaining. I mean, I, I always used to laugh that people would say, like, Barack Obama is not a, he's not a politician. Uh, the last Democrat to win two terms in office with over 50% of the vote, anybody know who that is? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR. Barack Obama was an incredible politician, but he wasn't a showy or ostentatious one, and his values were good. We, in America, in a democracy, we need a little bit of the, you know, it's, it's a bread and circus always, and now we've gone too far in the direction of the circus. That was measured, right? <laughs> a, a little more measured than Steve Schmidt was a few weeks okay. ago on the front. But, uh, Mandela was influenced by people beyond South Africa. Of course, uh, Gandhi, I think, was an early uh, influencer of the ANC and of Mandela. Uh, was Martin Luther King one of those whom uh, he connected with in any way? So um, one of the interesting things about Mandela, and Mandela used to even joke about this, is that he, um, he didn't know much about America. And if you think about, as you mentioned, this is the, the centennial of his birth. So he was born in 1918. He was born in 1918 in the Transkei. No electricity, no running water. He's basically born in the 19th century. I remember when I went and visited uh, the, these, these Methodist missionary schools that he went to and realized that these English teachers who were teaching him, who were older when he was a young man, had, and they were teaching him Charles Dickens, had actually been alive when Dickens was publishing. <laughs> so, um, so he, he he, his world was a world of the British colonial world. He was an Anglophile. And we used to argue about this, actually. And I don't know if anybody saw it. I wish I could pull it up here. There's a fantastic picture. It's one of my favorite pictures of, um, of Nelson Mandela. Do you ever see the picture of him riding in a carriage with the Queen in London? Well, his smile could not have been bigger. And, he famously was the only person in, I don't know, you know, 50 years who called her Elizabeth, and she liked it. Um, so, he, so he, so this is getting back to Martin Luther King. I mean, he, the America, the, he knew about Abraham Lincoln. He knew about Joe Lewis. He was a boxer, he was an amateur boxer, and Joe Lewis was the American he most admired for, for reasons which, which are obvious. Um, he did a, um, his, his school, his high school did a class play about Abraham Lincoln, and he laughed because he played John Wilkes Booth in the play. <laughs> um, so, and he was not an Americanophile, and he thought, as we chatted before, I mean, he saw America as a colonial imperialist power. Um, America had rejected helping him in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and I, and the, one of the small roles that I played, I remember, was that, you know, telling him about, about, um, about America. And I remember when they were going through the Constitution, I remember one morning he said to me, what is federalism? Um, and, you know, he wasn't being disingenuous. I mean, they were trying to figure it out. And I, I do remember another, he used to, he used to, um, I, we, I loved seeing him in the morning. And, and um, we always, uh, he was quite a Beau Brummel. I don't know if people realize that. And, and, um, and I always wanted to, unlike tonight where I'm not wearing a tie and Tim is wearing a tie, <laughs> uh, I always wanted to wear the same thing uh, that he was wearing. And he, and I would come in and see what he was going to wear. Uh, and then I remember one morning, and I was dressed up in my suit, and he said, Richard, you look like a superpower this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so he saw America as a superpower. 
uh, his view of America was similar to that of Fidel Castro's, an imperialistic power uh, against which one was called to struggle. Uh, he admired Castro quite a bit. Uh, he admired the Cuban Revolution very much. In fact, uh, gave a, a speech early on after his release from prison in Cuba uh, in which he extolled the virtues of the Cuban Revolution and uh, its struggle against imperialism. Uh, to what extent was that just in the moment in Cuba or, or was Fidel Castro a larger influence in his life? No, he, he admired Fidel. Uh, when you think about it, there are a lot of similarities between Fidel Castro and, and Nelson Mandela. They were both children of privilege, both lawyers, both tall, handsome, um, athletic men, uh, basically people who revolted against their own uh, background, their own class in a way. Um, he had great admiration for what Castro did in, in Cuba. He also admired Fidel because uh, in the, when he was a young revolutionary in South Africa, the, the Fidel and the Cubans gave money to the ANC, uh, gave money to him. He never forgot that. He admired some other strong men, too, who had, who had also supported the ANC. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, one of the only arguments we ever got in was about Muammar Gaddafi, and he wouldn't allow me to say a negative word about Muammar Gaddafi. Um, so he was, he was loyal. And then the other thing that I think people don't realize about him in terms of this, you know, the Santa classification of Nelson Mandela is he, Nelson Mandela was a, a member of the Communist Party in the 1950s. And in South Africa, that was literally the only political party that allowed people of color <laughs> to be members, which was one thing. But they, they were the political party that fought against the colonial powers and fought against the the, you know, the white racist government. And, um, and basically all the men, the ANC men of his generation were, were members of the Communist Party as well, like Fidel, obviously. One could argue that uh, admiring Gaddafi and, and Castro would be uh, perhaps a, a flaw in, in looking at these strong men who, who were violent against their own people. Was, was this a... Uh, uh, a flaw in his own character that he would be so attracted to such leaders? You know, he, oh, I mean, he, he always said that he was a man with, of, of tremendous flaws and very, and very human. I mean, I, I think his, I, I actually think one of the tenets of leadership is that the principle has to guide you, not loyalty. Loyalty cannot be above a principle. I think in the case of his support, perhaps for, for Castro or for Gaddafi, he let his own loyalty supersede his attachment to principles, because neither of those two men, at least ultimately, embodied the same principles of fairness and justice, justice and equity uh, that Mandela stood for. So um, I don't know. He might take it back. He might yell at me again about it now. But. <laughs> A uh, number of uh, people are asking about the Invictus movie uh, uh, and the, the reality of how important that rugby match was in, in uh, Mandela's life in South African history. Yes, that, the, the, that movie, Invictus, is based on a book called Playing the Enemy by John Carlin, uh, which I really envy that I wish I'd written it. It's a fantastic book. And... One of the things that it does, and it shows Mandela how shrewd a leader he was, is that he wanted to, to bring peace to his country. He wanted to uh, bring black and white together. He realized that sports was a possible connective tissue in the country. And the sport that white South Africans, uh, particularly Afrikaans white South Africans loved, was rugby. And he made it his business to learn all about rugby when he, um, when he was still in prison and had his first meeting with P.W. Bota, the great crocodile, the apartheid leader. He memorized a bunch of rugby statistics and reeled them off, and they talked about rugby in the beginning. I mean, he understood his EQ was fantastic, um, and, but he realized that his embrace of the Springboks, that's what the South African rugby team is called, by the way, my wife, Mary Fafstengel, her father was a Springback 
Springbok rugby player in South Africa. She's South African. Um, Duly noted. <laughs> um, but he, he understood that that was a way, a symbolic and real way of showing white South Africans that this black leader, the next leader of their country, was large enough and generous enough to embrace their culture. So when he went to that, that uh, World Cup match and put on the Springbok uniform, I can't tell you what that meant to, to so many people, uh, to black and white. And it was an incredible piece of political theater. Uh, it was incredibly shrewd, but it also showed his kind of large heartedness and generosity about something that he didn't, once didn't understand. Mm -hmm. uh, this next question is about your time in Washington, which ended presumably uh, at the end of Obama's. Yes. Uh, presidency. And this question, I, I have to confess, as a Minnesotan, it, it, I thought it said, are there any Mondales in Washington? Uh, are there any Mandelas in Washington? Um, you know, I, uh, you mentioned a, a long time ago, um, I was head of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And um, I, there was a, uh, a scholar, I'm blanking on his name, it's the book about the, uh, it's not called Band of Brothers, but it's about the, the men who created the Constitution, uh, founding fathers. And I was doing an interview with him like this, and I said, Is there, uh, are there people like that today? And he said, there are people like that in every city in the country. And there's that old English expression, uh, come at the moment, come at the man or the woman, that his argument is that when in times of crisis, people of quality step forward and they're, and they're everywhere. And is there a Nelson Mandela in Washington? I don't know that we need a Nelson Mandela, but I do think we need people who, who will put principle above party, uh, who who will put the health of the republic and doing what they know is right against uh, an authoritarian leader who doesn't think about those things. I mean, I think, I think it's a moment that you know, people have to stand up. And I think it's the same. It's happened multiple times in our history. Um, you know, people had to stand up during the McCarthy era. People had to stand up during the Civil War. People had to stand up in the early years of, of uh, the Roosevelt presidency. I think, I think people are there and people have to rise to the occasion. And if you wouldn't mind sh sharing some of the names. Who are some of these people you've just described who are there? <laughs> Any names come to mind? You know, I, 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 the reason I don't want to mention any names, apart from the fact that I'm not thinking of them, is I don't want to leave anybody out. But I do think that the, look, the, the, the framers hated political parties. They hated partisanship. They called it faction. And faction, political parties have been, in many ways, a poison in our country. And, and so, the idea that, that people put the interest of their party above the, the country is something that's not good for anybody. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the partisanship, you know, the, the idea that there's, there are Democrats who, can, who, who criticize Trump uh, may just have to do with partisanship. That isn't they're not necessarily showing a greater virtue, although you know, that is the, 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 the right moral position. What we need is, is, is people on the other side of the aisle to show moral leadership and say, no, I can't support this, so this isn't right. I mean, this person may be the head of my party, uh, but this principle violates everything that we stand for as a republic, not just as a party. So, so I think the, you know, the, 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 the challenge is much more to people uh, on, the, on the Republican side of the aisle than on the Democratic side of the aisle. A number of questions about how you, Richard Stengel, became uh, involved with Mandela and became such an intimate friend of his and an author, co-author of his, his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. So um, 
I, I actually have a, a lovely story about that. It was, it was serendipitous. I mean, serendipity is the, you know, is, is uh, you know, one of the most important things in life. I always tell my, I have two sons, and I always say, um, luck is opportunity plus readiness. And I actually, uh, I had written a previous book about South Africa. I went there in, in the 1980s and wrote a book about, a, about apartheid in a little town. And um, just by accident, uh, somebody who was having lunch with the, the editor who had signed up Mandela for this book had just read my book, and he said, you need to talk to Rick Stengel. And he, uh, Bill Phillips is his name. He was the, then the uh, editor-in-chief of Little Brown, a wonderful, great man. Uh, stayed up all night, read my book, and called me in the morning and you know, offered me the job. So that was um, serendipitous. I, if we have time, I'm gonna, I'll tell you about the first time I met Nelson Mandela. So, uh, I'll try to make it fast. I got down there, it was 1992, the ANC was completely disorganized. I mean, the country was in the throes of almost a civil war. He'd signed this big contract to do this book. I'd sp I, first week I didn't see him, the second week I didn't see him, the third week I didn't see him, the fourth week I, I'm like begging, I need to see him. We, I, you know, and I finally got uh, ushered into his office. Um, by uh, Barbara Masekela, who later became the uh, South African ambassador to the US. And I mean, it is kind of overwhelming to see him for the first time and kind of amazing. And, and we chit-chatted for a second. And then literally after like two or three minutes, he said, I suppose after a few more conversations, you will, like this, you will have enough for your book. <laughs> so, I, I'd been frustrated. I wasn't very measured in my reaction. I said, Mr. Mandela, if you think we'll have enough for a book after a few sessions like this, you're crazy. <laughs> and I was like doing this gesture and Barbara Masekela came back into the office and like pulled me up by my... <laughs> I thought, oh my God, this whole thing is over. So I called her the next day. I said, I have to see him. I have to apologize. Let me back in. I mean, another few weeks went by, and um, she finally got me in to see him a couple of weeks later, and I saw him, and I, and I, you know, I was nervous, and I apologized, and, you know, sometimes strange words pop into your head like it did the first time, and I said, I just am so sorry that I, I, where I was the other day, I'm sorry I was so brusque with you. At which point he smiled, and he said, if you thought you were brusque with me the other day, you must be a very gentle young man indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard Stengel. Thank you very much.